Hi. Welcome to issue 22 of Scout and Birdie. A thousand words. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So A Thousand Words was really inspired by one of our artists that is on this issue, Mike Haverty, and you'll hear their piece later, the piece that inspired A Thousand Words. We were doing a holiday show with them, and whenever I think of the holidays, I really feel like that piece and that show connects to that time for me, and so it felt very fitting to have this theme for this time of the year. Mm Mm-hmm. Each piece for this issue is inspired by a photograph. And so, of course, the title of this issue comes from the old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. So in this issue, you can go on to scoutandbirdie.com and see each of the pictures that inspired all of the artists for this issue. And it's a really special one. You get a real sense of the artist on a deeper level. Yeah, I feel like all of the artists we worked with for this issue, we saw, actually saw through a picture, a part of their life that we weren't necessarily connected to, even if they were people that we are close friends with, Mm -hmm. which feels fitting for this being our holiday issue in that they're sort of that feeling of familiarity and familial and having those like closer connections, those more intimate moments with people Mm -hmm. um, that comes with the holidays. Yeah. The holidays are also a time where we kind of strive for these picture perfect family moments. And I mean, I think about in my family every year when we were little on Christmas Eve, we would take a picture with my brother and my sister and I in front of our fireplace And we would each hold a single present that we got to open on Christmas Eve. And my parents would always take a picture of us. So we have pictures throughout the years of us wearing really ugly pajamas (laughs) and looking awkward in our bodies as we grow up and kind of see this progression. But this idea that we are trying to capture the permanence of these moments that feel important. That's so interesting that to be able to like watch the progression of you and your family getting older through these like holiday tradition photos. Mm -hmm. I feel like when my family took a photo together for any holiday, there was always this feeling of sort of forcing us to all look a certain way. My mom was not into candid photos. And so it was like, you smile, smile more. No, not as much. Look down a little bit less. Your hair is in your face. And so all of the pictures we have are these like perfect moments. And yet they're obviously so curated. And do we really get a feel of like what was going on in that moment? And we only take pictures like when we're all dressed up and ready to go somewhere. Yeah, that's kind of funny. But that is just the way like certain families do it. And It's interesting because in this issue, the artist really examined this idea of expectations of what our reality should be and how we can find fulfillment or find something meaningful when we leave those expectations behind. I feel like this is something that we talk about a lot, the idea of should, when we say, I should do something. And we're like, no, that's a negative way of thinking about it. And we have to rewrite that idea in our brains. Thank you to my therapist (laughs) for that idea. It's really 
it's really an interesting concept of rethinking the way we are viewing and rethinking the way we are examining these memories that we have of a certain moment and rewriting it. So this is a very interesting issue and I love it. Yeah, it was a really exciting one to work on. Yes. So we are so thrilled to take you into issue 22. A thousand words. All right. First up in the issue, we have a piece by Emily Matapusi Para. Emily is a poet that we have had on for many issues of Scout and Birdie, and we are always glad to have her on for another. Yes, we absolutely adore her. Her piece will be read by Jennifer Keel, and with that, we'll take you into her piece, Everything You Don't See. The street, for one thing, though you can be pretty sure it's there. The moon, too, a certainty even when hidden. But what you don't know is that it was visible in the seconds before the photograph was taken, that it retreated behind a cloud, suddenly shy. You don't see people, though everywhere they lead their traces, clues to their existence present in what you do see, lights that are turned on, Trees that are groomed, gardens that require weeding and watering on a near-continual basis, a skyscraper that people must work in during the day, leaving it after hours to the night watchmen and the cleaners who they've never met. You don't see that it's Halloween, though you might guess that it's autumn. A breezy and warm All Hallows' Eve, with trick-or-treaters escorted by their parents who wear expensive matching costumes. What else don't you see? The dog park across the road, which replaced swing sets and carousels when the neighbors decided that the dog population was rising faster than children, and the city didn't care one way or another, except for saving money. And new swing sets are expensive. The soup kitchen that is the last one still open in this neighborhood, serving as a refuge for those living on the streets, and for the few remaining Chinese pensioners in the rent-controlled, cramped apartments above it. The neighborhood looks nice, well-heeled, the type featured in coffee table books for patients to skim through in dentist's offices. Nice. A bland adjective. Inoffensive. Yet we don't see the socioeconomic realities. Is this an oasis inside a city? Or is it yet another example of gentrification? You don't see the protracted fights over affordable housing. You don't see the people who used to live in the apartment building facing the garden, long priced out, just as you don't see the current occupants, who are mostly unaware of the past battles. I too am unseen. I am the documenter, not the documented. This used to be my neighborhood, seven years ago. During a different time in my life, I sipped hot chocolates at the little shop across from the park, just outside the range of the camera lens. I walked these streets, 
greeted these neighbors, smelled these flowers. As I continue strolling past this scene, snapping photographs, this view fades and others take its place. Other alleyways, majestic brick buildings, dogs in costume, and doorways capture my interest. Some I remember from when I lived here, or from previous visits, and I exclaim at the gargoyle I found again, or the funny street name, or the unique stained glass window. But many scenes are new and disorienting to me. All are around a corner from this urban oasis, but you can't see them from here. When I reach a busy city street, it marks the end of the neighborhood and the end of my walk. I pause and turn back, reflecting. The moon has come out from behind its cloud and glimmers down on me. A few straggling trick-or-treaters are left. Most have already gone home to count their candy. This is not the same place any longer, nor am I the same. I see that now. Next up in the issue, we have our dear friend, Abigail Phelps. Abigail has been on quite a few issues of Scout and Birdie, and we are so thrilled to have her back again with her piece, I Give You This Lemon Loaf. Here, I give you this lemon loaf. I give you my cheeks, which I am still 70% made of. I give you my toddler mullet and my feminist straight bangs. I give you this smile, this smile that wonders why adults don't write checks in crayon and why they laugh when I tell them I'm an astronaut fashion designer. I give you this lemon loaf, this lemon loaf I made with my grandmother the grandmother who allowed you to slowly grate her into tiny, veined pieces, so small that one day, when she had a granddaughter of her own, she could only communicate by making baked goods her doctor told her she cannot eat, something, something cholesterol, and by pinching my arm fat. I make you this pumpkin pie when you have nowhere to go for Thanksgiving. I let you kiss the back of my neck as I chop these onions, and I let you snap at me when I make a Sylvia Plath joke as you clean your oven. I buy you your whiskey gingers. This smile, this four-year-old smile, this 25-year-old smile bought you your whiskey gingers. I feed you your pile of ketchup with your side of tater tots, and I buy you those $100 combat boots I should have used myself to fight you off. Here, I have cinched this apron tight, red squares, white squares, Wrapped round my head, crack it open, this is my brain, take it, take the bits that crunch with anxiety and melt with anger. I have let you fuck me in this apron after everyone else went home, and I have given you the leftover sweet potato casserole. My favorite. But I give it to you. And I make this dough for our homemade pizza on my lunch break and survive your banana pepper topping. I give you a knowing smile as your holidays curdles. I give you a hug and play with the hair behind your ear that curls when you need a haircut. 
I had wanted to make you my mom's beef stew or her taco salad. I let you make me feel more like my mother than a recipe could. Left. Take my heart. It's in my right hand. To pledge. To shake. To wipe that speck of flour off your lip before I kiss it. We are born giving too much with our youthful, chubby smiles and our loaves. Do you know when I was young, I would mispronounce my L's. Llama into Yama, love into Yuv. You wouldn't know. It's not like my right hand. Do not smile. I've not allowed you to smile. I allow you to kiss me after you make me pay off your proclivity for mead. I give you a polite nod as you corner me and ask with a mouthful of bar pretzels, you wearing something cinnamon? I let you press against me in line at Dunkin' Donuts, 9 a.m. on a Tuesday, let you yell at me for not continuing to talk to you at the Owl, Coles, Danny's, Simon's, Tencat, Konax, Dubonair. I give you the citrus of my wit, the batter of my imagination, the powdered sugar of my affection. Another click on the egg timer, continuously, always, we give. These dimples, these hands, this Yemen yof. All right, we're here with the wonderfully talented Levi Schrader. Welcome, Levi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're going to be hearing after this Levi's song, Coming Home Soon, and we are so excited to share it with you. Levi, this Coming Home Soon song is so full of, like, so many, like, deep moments of, like, religious connection and imagery, and it makes me think of, like, so many different Mm -hmm. things. What was your process like when you were creating this song that's so rich of so many moments? Well, writing the words took maybe 15 minutes, and I, and I had sort of been in a dry spell. I hadn't written anything new in a long time, and I, and I just sat down on my bed, and um, I was kind of having a, a bit of a crisis moment, I guess, a personal crisis moment, and this song, these words kind of poured out of me, and, and I was able to understand where I was in my process, moving away from the faith that my family had given me. Um, my mother, for a time, uh, did travel around with a Pentecostal revivalist, like a fire and brimstone revivalist, and she would essentially open for him and, and would you know do sermons. And they would go around the various small towns in Tennessee and West Virginia, and they would evangelize in the town square and things like that. Uh, and then my father, my dad's in the Marines. He's still a Marine. He's um, a, a general now. Um, and the Marine Corps itself is also like a religion. It's a, it's a very rigid structure and a hierarchy, and a certain way things are done. And so I think as I, as I grew up and, and kind of, wi- not wised up, because I don't want to say that my parents don't have their own wisdom, they do, but sort of uh, uh, found my own stream um, and, was, and I realized that I was diverging from theirs. It was a lot of pain because I'm, I'm leaving these systems that I grew up in and, I'm, and it's basically like shedding a, an old skin. So this song sort of helped me encapsulate how I felt and that it was that I'm, I'm, I'm moving further away, but I'm still, I'm coming back to you wholer. I've 
hold on to some of the things that I've been given, but I, I've had some time to really polish them in my own way, and I'm, I'm coming home. Um, I'll be changed, but I'm coming home. So I think that's sort of where that song was born from. That is amazing. It's such a lovely, lovely song. Do you normally write lyrically first and then interpret it through music later? It, it depends. So usually it's, it's in tandem. I'll, I'll sit down and, and I'll find um, there's a melody or, or a single line will come to me first and, and that'll spark something and then there's and that line usually has a, has a lilt or a melody to it and then I'll, I'll figure out what that is. Um, this song though, yeah, is out of, sort of out of the ordinary where all the words came first and then I set it to music. Um, but the, I, I, as I was writing them, I had the, the melody in my head already too so it wasn't too hard to figure out. But mostly it's, yeah, usually it's in tandem. Um, or a lot of times, too, uh, on the train. The train, there's something really nice about that. If you just listen to the conversations happening around you, you'll hear something like, oh, that's nice, that's lyrical. It's yeah. a funny way to say that, and you can steal it and use it. So, yeah. And you said earlier you are a playwright as mm -hmm. well. So how does that differ from your musical writing when you go about that process? So for me, I'm, and I'm still developing my process on writing plays uh, and what works for me. It's different. It's, they're, they're very similar in that both of these require a lot of reading. I read constantly, and most of my inspiration comes from books. Um, so with, when it comes to writing a play, depending on, on what it is, I front load it with research. or I'll do straight research for two or three months. Um, and then once I feel like I've reached capacity and I'm spilling over, I will sit and, and churn out a draft in a month and a half or so. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, but same with music. Um, there was a line, I was reading a book uh, by Anthony Burgess, the Napoleon Symphony, and there was a line, uh, it was just a single line, it was, uh, it's all over now, my chevalier. This is what one of the, what this um, uh, character says to Napoleon in exile while he's an elbow, but that line's all over now, chevalier. My chevalier's like, ooh, that's nice. So I took that and, <laughs> you know, things like that and, and borrowing and yeah. reading a lot. Do you feel like in your work there's a general theme that is coming through with like personal life or do you feel like it's sort of a mix up of all of the different things that are influencing yeah. your reading, your personal life? Yeah, usually the reading is, I, I'm, if, it's, if, it's something in, if there's something in a book that I'm reading that strikes me, it's, it's resonating with me in a personal way so that I can take it and, and use it to work through personal issues. And I think that's why people, hopefully, I mean, usually people read. Um, they want they want to empathize with the characters that they're reading with and feel what they're feeling, or the characters are going to uh, project their feelings onto you. Um, and it's a uh, it's really nice to, to see that your own feelings mirrored in these characters, um, especially with things like uh, with Napoleon or the, that that novel with Napoleon. Have your opinions on him? I don't think he was he was a, a fascinating person, not a super humane one though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, but I have a lot of personal struggle and with um, military service. My, you know, my father's, um, my father's in the Marines, my brother's in the military, my sister's husband, I have cousins and grandparents who are. And I flirted with joining the Marine Corps out of college. And then as of, I think, not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before, uh, no, it was, it was last Christmas, um, I was thinking about going back to it. Um, and I was thinking about maybe becoming a chaplain. My dad gave me the phone number and personal email address to the chaplain of the Marine Corps. And he's like, he'll be in Chicago around Christmas time mm. and he's expecting a call, mm. so. Um, I think uh, coming to terms with how I feel about um, the military, which and, and I want to thank all of, if there are any military service members, current or retired, listening, thank you. Thank you, and I sincerely mean that. Um, I just, um, my, my, my personal hang-up comes with the objective of the military, which is to protect one country, protect this one, 
uh, and at times wage war on another. And that's where I'm like, I don't have, I think I have the authority to take a life. I just don't. Or to be part of a mechanism that's where that's part of it. Yeah. So, yeah. I think, like, religion and and military, and this is coming from someone who is, like, deeply religious, but I think that I'm in mean, my father's in the military, so so I, I, I have um, those connections. But I think that those are, are paths that, that oftentimes can be when not choose because um, it's something that is the right choice for you. Mm-hmm. It's a path that can be sort of, like, the pick when you when you feel like you don't you don't know the path that you're going down because it is so structured exactly. because there is a way to like fall into religion in a way that is not active mm-hmm. it it can be so passive and and same with military there is really like um, a hierarchy of you know who you listen to what you do what is correct what is not correct and I think to see you using those influences in your work mm-hmm. as something that you can respect and love but that you've chosen a different path and that you've returned to it and come home is is so beautiful and such an interesting way to to like pay respect to that and also see that that is not the way that you were going. Right, yeah. And I, I think that's part of, partially too with religion, um, well, at least with Christianity, and I could speak to this with Christianity, it's about um, giving up, uh, I guess, a sense of ego and, and letting Christ in. Uh, and so you're, you're giving up a sense of self in a way or filling yourself up with this exterior uh, Force. Same thing with the military. You you know you eschew any sort of personal uh, prejudices or opinions to follow orders from the top down. So there's again this shedding of, of a personal self. Whereas to be an artist, it's all about. I mean, it's about others you want to empathize, but you you draw from the self, and it's a lot of self reflection. There's not a lot of time for that in the military. Well, how does this order make me feel? Let me stop and reflect on it. No, <laughs> you have to do it. And I think with religion too, if you get into or with Christianity anyway, because that's that's the angle I understand it from. Um, when you get into self-reflection and thinking about how those lessons really play into your life uh, and you start looking at it somewhat critically, you start to see holes in the logic, uh, but that's where faith has to come in. So yeah, I I think um, I wanted to be a more self-reflective individual and deep Christianity or military service kind of um, hampered me some ways. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting to see though the way you interpret these structured things and work it into your new mode of self-reflection. And it's almost in these these very structured, like this is a new structure for you to play among. It's like your music and your creative art. And I think it's tricky because art is something that is very structured in a way and has such like a grand sense of purpose, but because it's a little more abstract, it's hard for people to pinpoint that direction but I think it's this is something that I think has just as much value Mm -hmm. to me at least while I'm listening to it and brings me just as much joy so and and what you mean with the putting structure into art and waiting on those moments of of inspiration it's like um trying to catch leaves out of the wind to build a tree out of them it's like it's that sort of when when do they when are they going to pass over and am I going to get the right ones uh, and I, I think some people, um, they have the ability, but maybe not the patience or the, the, the belief in themselves that they can catch all the leaves. Um, but everybody can. Just give yourself some time. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, we are so excited to share this song with everyone at home. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us, Levi. Thank you. Thank you both very much. <laughs> so please enjoy Coming Home Soon.
This world moves so fast I'm scared to slow down To pick up the pieces of me from the ground My head won't stop swelling My eyes lose their shine This dream I keep having Is more yours than it's mine Stood on the bridges that lead to the sea Playing with matches that you gave to me I burned all your Bibles and best crooked lies Carved your name on a pew And amen on my That I've gone away You shut up your windows To keep out the day And you just pay tributes Like parking lot fares With the change in your pockets And half-uttered prayers I'm here writing hymnals To vestigial gods I'm dreaming of Rhyme schemes to cover my frauds To build us a home that will never leave No snakes in the grass No Adam or Eve And if you don't meet me on some golden shore Rest your heart easy You couldn't do more I'm older and colder And nobody's fool With the maids drawing water From Solomon's pool And when you fall faster Than stars from their peak And turn to the pages that no tongue can speak I'll write in the margins a sweet little tune through open the windows I am coming home soon All right, next up in the issue is Kathleen Kinlan. And you'll remember Kathleen most recently from our In the Shadows issue. Yes, we are so excited to have Kathleen back with her piece while she's bleeding. This is the week your mother tells you she's bleeding. Bleeding in ways she shouldn't at her age. She started bleeding and she can't stop. You're on your period too, 
staining your fingertips and the underside of the toilet seat in that spot you always forget to clean. You and your fear wait longer than you should to empty your menstrual cup. Your red-black sludge diffusing in the water hisses, she's sick, she's sick. Your showboat cunt is oozing health while her biopsy is sent to the lab, while her doctor isn't calling, while you hope to never see blood again, while you go to work and rehearsal and you leave her and leave and leave, while she folds your washcloths into thirds instead of halves, secretly adding grace to your home between firm business calls, while she falls asleep in the grass outside the temple made of lace, after she tells you that her favorite color isn't lavender anymore. You realize for the first time that favorite colors change. While she teaches you how to buy cucumbers, fingers tasting the whole table while the tiny leathery farmer smiles expectantly, she picks her prey, bends down both ends a millimeter to make sure it's stiff and crisp. While she hangs tiny ghost tea lights around your bedroom doorframe a month and a half before Halloween, hopeful that soon your apartment will look like you're alive on purpose. While you echo panicked, I love yous that bounce from the million moments you think she deserves life more than you, she's bleeding. Next up in the issue, we have Annabelle Wing. And Annabelle was in our third ever issue, Roots. And we are so thrilled to have her back with her piece, Synaptic Gap. I was 23 and my life was a series of parties. These parties were well lit and poorly drawn, which is to say we tried and yet. Our parties were off, tilted either spatially or temporally, misplaced or displaced. Something was definitely wrong with them, though I can't say precisely what. The purpose of these parties was to pageant an idea of adulthood my friends and I had patchworked from television plot lines and scenes we remembered from our mother's photo albums. But television is set in New York City, and our mothers hadn't been young since the 80s, so our source material mismatched our circumstances. We were 23 in 2013 in a small post-industrial southern city. Our setting included a local brewery, a lack of cocaine, and access to a burgeoning artisanal soap scene. So an ideal party might have been outdoors, in the woods, and involving biscuits, but we didn't have time to calibrate to our own reality. Like I said, there were too many parties. For example, that year, I celebrated Christmas 18 times before December 25th. How? At least two cookie exchanges, one caroling disaster, and I don't remember what else. It was exhausting. I was exhausted. Sometimes I would be talking and my speech would come out mixed up. I never noticed that kind of thing before and it terrified me. I didn't consider how I was talking more than ever at all these parties, and also I was always a little bit drunk. Instead, 
I found a neurologist. At my first appointment, I informed my neurologist I had a degenerative neuromuscular condition. He told me I was probably wrong. Probably wrong meant possibly right, not enough reassurance where death was concerned, so I returned to his office again and again. Finally, he offered to administer the only definitive test. Yes, I said, I want that. He warned me it would be uncomfortable. One of my friends lived in a nicer apartment building than the rest of us. It was a refurbished textile mill with really high ceilings. Everyone who lived there was young with rich parents, and on nights when there wasn't an official party, we'd hang out in the lobby where an unofficial party was always going on. Once, I met a woman who was in school to become an actuary. I'd never heard that word before. She explained it had to do with statistics. With a few facts about a person, she could predict when they die and how. Her eyes got all glowy as she talked about heart disease and workplace fatalities. I wanted to get away from her, so I struck up a conversation with an acquaintance, pleasant enough, until a week later when he called to sell me a life insurance policy. A difference between television and life is that on TV, the totality of a party is plot-relevant. All the bland lacunas are left out. The same can be said of a character's mistakes. Phoebe lied about working at a corporate massage parlor, so hilarity could ensue. Carrie got her diaphragm stuck, so Samantha could unstick it, demonstrating new heights of non-threatening homoeroticism. George killed his fiancée with poison envelopes because the writers of Seinfeld realized his marriage was a mistake. Unlike real life, the blue-lit universe bends towards order, and if order fails, we can blame God, the showrunner. The neurologist's definitive test was electrodes, in pairs of two, attached to my skin, tracing nerves down my back and legs. The electrodes connected to wires, which snaked into a machine. After the neurologist attached the electrodes, I lay down on his examining table. He pressed a button, releasing an electric current. I made a small new sound, like what you might hear from downstairs when a trap snaps a mouse in an indistinct corner of your attic. Do you want me to keep going? He asked. Yes. The shocks became more intense. The results of the test were clean. An unforced error is disorienting. There's this one photo in my mom's album I used to fixate on. It showed her at a party painted head to toe in gold. It was 1984. The costume was a mistake. Her sweat beaded. The paint streaked. What are you even supposed to be? I'd ask. A gold person. That's not a good answer. I don't have a good answer then. Why did you do it? I don't know. Was it Halloween? Probably not. Photo albums often proceed in chronological order and imply a narrative accidentally. Even on its own, a photo implies a definite negative causality. Whatever the picture records, including the act of taking the picture, it did not preclude the present from coming into being. In the definitive test, each pair of electrodes included one electrode to stimulate the nerve and another to record the nerve's response. A talker and a listener, a classic Carrie and Miranda dynamic. If there had been a mix-up, if I'd gotten hooked up to only one kind, the test would have hurt twice as much or not at all. In either case, the results of the test would have indicated a total absence of neural response. I'm sorry to inform you, you've died already. 
At one party, I remember staring at the strings of lights above our heads. I don't think I was even drinking for once, but the lights looked blurry and haloed, a distant choir of angels. My roommate at the time approached me. I'd probably been staring too long at the ceiling. You look completely miserable, she said. I was surprised. Did I feel miserable? You don't have to be here. She didn't say it in a nice way, but it was still a nice thing to say. I could leave, so I left. It had recently rained. Outside, the pavement looked cool to the touch and relieved. The party glittered like crushed glass behind me. It would be a couple more years before I learned anything. We're here with our good friend, David Gordeski. Thanks for being here, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, you'll remember David from our roots issue and our home issue. And he's back sharing another comic of his called Fraternity. So, David, tell us a little bit about what inspired this comic. Yeah, um, so from the prompt, A Thousand Words, the first place my mind sort of went was no words, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a rebel like that, and I like to go against the green. Um, and um, it's specifically inspired by a moment in my life uh, when I, it was like a very intimate moment I had with someone I was dating, and they asked me a question um, that required me to share my feelings in a very deep and personal way. And um, I still am not very good at that. And I think I, like, I've come a long way, but also I'm still very not good at that. And I remember just being paralyzed for what seemed like hours. And I couldn't say anything. And it was, it was weird. Um, so I was exploring uh, that moment a lot and thinking about just generally like toxic masculinity and the way it uh has us uh sit on top of our feelings until they like boil and fester into something way worse than what it originally started as so that's the that's the sort of my life portion of uh this comic the other things that are coming into it are i've been really into horror as a genre lately so I have I threw in some elements of that um, I've been reading a lot of horror comics uh, Junji Ito specifically look him up really really great I love all of his stuff also I just knew I wanted to I wanted to try out doing some stuff on black paper with white ink instead of white paper with black ink just because I think it looks really really cool those are all the sort of elements that went into this stew <laughs> <laughs> It is. It does look very, very cool. As you'll see on scoutandbirdie.com, you can see the comic. And it is a very vibrant and captivating comic. And you are really playing with the way you frame the comic, too. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about what yeah. that inspiration is for that. Um, yeah, I guess I... Um... What I love to do when I'm uh, making a comic is um, I, I really like to amp up the drama of a situation or the tension of a situation by uh, 
throwing the camera around wildly. Camera, I'm doing air quotes that you can't hear in a podcast, although you might have just heard my pinky crack. But yeah, so I really like to, from panel to panel, I like to think of like what new perspective can I put into each panel. Um, and you'll also see that like sometimes it's not about throwing the camera around. It's about keeping it static and even keeping the characters static. Um, and that's like a very different effect. Um, so yeah, I, I really like to, I really like to play around with where our perspective is viewing and like going really close in and like really far out. Um, as well as uh, changing the shapes of the panels to sort of make a more streamlined experience or like something that's uh, more thematic with what's going on, like the action. Uh, another thing that I, I find that I end up settling into, uh, not so much in like the initial drawings of it, but as I start to lay out the final penciling for before I ink it, I like realize like, oh man, these panels, if I just switched the angle of this one, it would be sort of repeating angles, but in different scenes, which I think is like a really, like it's, it's something that you don't think about, but it's like a really cool thing to see on the page when two different moments are handled with the same kind of like angles and composition. So that's also something that I'm, I'm playing with here. I remember from one of our past interviews with you, we defined your uh, comic style as very cute characters looking very sad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for this one, you've sort of taken us away from that, though some people might think that centipedes are very cute. I yeah. Think you've made them look as cute as I've seen a centipede look. <laughs> so I, I, re I really can't help it. It's just how I do it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I did want something a little more creepy, crawly, and something a little more grotesque, which you'll see towards some of the later panels of the comic. Just because I feel that this uh, this topic for me is like something that like that it, it, it evokes those images, like super grotesque, um, creepy, crawly, gross images. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so this uh, this moment um, that I have in front of you specifically is like a sort of it's where the it's where the comic starts to like depart from reality a little bit. This this one starts off as more of like a autobiographical kind of thing, and then it very quickly turns to this less realistic, more uh, fantasy kind of thing, um, which is also something I, I do when I'm like writing my comics. I just kind of like. <laughs> I don't know. I just go with the flow. I start with one simple image. For this, it was that moment where I was asked a question about how I was feeling and I could not say anything. Um, and uh, from there, I sort of just went on this like fantasy journey and then tie it all back together. <laughs> Is this where your head actually went in that moment to centipedes crawling around? Um, I feel like this is this is what was going on uh, this is what was going on inside my body <laughs> um, that I couldn't really put words to. <laughs> um, hundreds of little centipedes crawling underneath my skin. It's interesting because the centipedes and going in this more grotesque style, it kind of reminds me of some of the puppetry that I've seen you do and oh, like yeah. how it's interesting to see the way it might be influencing a little bit. I don't know if that's too leading, but it might be influencing a little bit 
I mean, it definitely is. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would definitely say it is. I only because I've been working on um, I've been working with Rough House for the very closely on like a creepy body horror play for uh, the last couple of months, like three four months. Um, so all that stuff is still very fresh on the mind. And it's also something that I'm just uh, looking forward to continuing to work on. It's mm-hmm. this very like dark. Uh, creepy but also like still cute and funny and relatable mm-hmm. <laughs> style yeah. um that's also a very important part of the puppetry work that i do um they may look creepy but they'll still give you a little kiss <laughs> 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 and in the end it's just as satisfying to look at and it's very visually appealing and so yeah everyone should go on to and check out david's comic fraternity Thank you so much for being here with us again, David. Of course. Thank you. It's a pleasure. (laughs) All right. Next in the issue, we have Danny Turek. And Danny is a wonderful poet who submitted to Scout and Birdie, and we were so excited to be introduced to his work because it is very lovely. He's a really warm, funny, friendly guy, and we loved working with him. Yeah. So please enjoy Danny's piece, Apples in Ice. Apple. Cast a granny past, grasp clean, crisp, and rotting on carpet technicolor. Ripped, rugged, cloth static, hum of scold. You barely catch it. See, Ben was like six-ish, the moon under his baby skin. A brother doesn't hear such violent crack at that age, like femur bones splitting or horses' hooves clap to the sidewalks, only in pictures or movies, foley artists never direct. See, Ben has that willing spirit to lay what isn't needed in front of the TV, like forgetting yourself into a prayer, into an offering to a god, whether it be Elmo or Remy or Wally. I sense the past. I don't remember it, taste it or smell it. Lay the apple core on my mouth. I'll get the bite of it. And, and, in, n. And notice lack of apostrophe, if it can be stomached. And hold tight, this is glue. This is stuck between, bit between. You see that back there in this upcoming from behind. We notice the horse and then gone and then glue and then you. Ice. Ice and nice and walking up stairwell after stairwell. Hope hall lengthens neck to head. Stairs are helping take themselves up. Haven't come back to ice because no melting. In this no melting, even if chewed, even if ground and smashed and warmed, hope in the chewing teeth become a food. Hope in the chewing my teeth moisten and grow and wilt and fall off crimson gumstock and grow again. Eternal food. Mouth is in abundant harvest. Please, ice, freeze, and abundant harvest for winter. 
All right, last up in the issue is Mike Haverty. The inspiration for our theme, A Thousand Words. Yeah. Mike's piece that we are so excited to have on the podcast and in the issue is what I always think of when I think of Mike or when I spend time with Mike. It is a piece that sort of encapsulates the essence of Mike in that it is noticing the beautiful in the imperfect and sort of bringing joy into moments that are unexpected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we are so thrilled to be sharing it with all of you at home. So please enjoy Mike's piece, Family Portrait. When I found out Santa Claus was a lie, I didn't know how to break the news to my parents. Several convincing arguments from classmates had so doubt, along with considering the logistics. But my mom and dad were always so excited about Santa every year. How could I be so cold watching my dad come to terms that I came to terms that Santa wasn't real? Parents grow up so fast. What's the harm of them holding on to my childhood innocence just a little longer? I'm nine years old when my dad asks, so what would you like for Christmas this year? I'm in the backseat of the car watching snow fly by when I keep up the lie. Oh, I haven't sent my wish list to Santa yet. I have to write that out soon. Tense silence. He exchanges glances with my mom, who is riding on the passenger side. Weeks later, Christmas morning, each present under the tree addressed to me bears the same tag. To Mike, from Mom and Dad. In a natural silence that comes after opening presents, my dad says out loud to no one in particular, Yep, no Santa this year. I absolutely adore the story and heart behind the No Santa Christmas of 1998, but for Christmas 2013, I really needed a Santa. Broke in more ways than one, moving back home feels eerily natural. In days, I'm gorging on comfort foods and playing video games with my brother like I have returned to an ancestral land, the timeless pleasures of the southwest suburbs. Leaving Chicago was leaving behind several run-ins with what I would assume was rock bottom. I would hit this rock bottom, wake up on my air mattress in a spinning room, and mutter, this must be rock bottom, only to discover that the bedrock was actually a narrow cliffside shelf easily rolled off into another freefall until hitting another jutting cliff. As I settle, now this must be rock bottom. On these respites, I consider positive lifestyle changes, like juicing, 
or only getting drunk two times a month. Homemade meals salve the soul. I snag a job at Starbucks. Structure. Home is where I can finally afford health insurance. But home is also where I've internalized people who need therapy just need a good friend. After a few months of a new start, I was back to keeping the lie. I roll over. It's easy to blame boozing on my dad passing away five days after I turned 21, or point to the isolation of moving away to college a few months after his death, but addiction was awaiting to flourish. I was isolating long before my first drink. Not being able to voice grief did not help. I already hid most details of my life from my immediate friends and family. I desperately wanted to start over. I said, I won't roll over. Earning a DUI that October, I'm blessed with not hurting myself or anyone physically. When I saw the red and blue lights flashing in the rearview mirror, I was hit with a wave of relief. It was over. No hiding. This. This must be a rock bottom. I am not great at holidays, nor great with talking with family at holiday parties, nor reliable at gift giving, and my gift giving is surrounded by ego that each gift has to be the best gift despite not having any money to spend, 2013 especially. I tried crafting, non-starter. Previously, my brother and I had talked about how much fun it would be to stage a funny, cheesy family Christmas portrait. It has been decided. The complete immediate family had open availability post-Thanksgiving dinner for a photo op. The stars were aligning. This single photo, my redemption. Thanksgiving night post-dinner, and I am in my room shaking with nerves. Downstairs in the living room, my mom, brother, sister, and brother-in-law are waiting for me to start my much-anticipated gift. Coming from a family that worries, I am positioned in a unique conundrum. Conceptually, we're making a purposefully janky Christmas photo, but internally, it must be perfect in its controlled jankiness. I walk out of my room, head to the linen closet, and find an old bluish-green bedsheet that could double as a backdrop seen in middle school class photos. My sister helps hang the backdrop. My brother is taller than the backdrop. My mind chimes in. All is lost. Thanks, mind. I worry. I get tense. And worry is as contagious as yawning. So soon we are all suddenly tense and worrying. My brother Kevin states that if we are going for jankiness, then a busted backdrop works in our favor. And I want to counter that the backdrop gives order and proper framing for jankiness and compromising the frame undermines the Earthset studio feel. But instead, I breathe. This is new to me. My sister Julie and her husband Mike embrace the idea of my looming brother and decorate him as a tree. They tend to tinsel and I go set up the shot using my dad's old tripod. Shit, it has become a bipod. And I want to scream, but instead we start stacking books. It's not that I've stopped caring about the photo, but maybe. Oh, wow. 
is this what it feels like to have fun with my family? We're hanging ornaments on my brother. My mom subbed her ugly sweater for a winter wonderland denim number. A dearest friend of mine and an adopted family member we've babysat for most of their life stopped by. We're out of Christmas sweaters, but our house collects costume pieces for pinches just like this. We have to act fast. The light-up tree topper on my brother's head is starting to burn, and the ornaments are shattering. We pose. I hit the timer on the camera. I run back into my space, and I don't quite make it in time before the flash. We go with it. I bounce back to the camera, and the picture is still loading. Of all the Christmas songs, Little Drummer Boy has got to be the least musically interesting. But I like the idea. This boy finds himself at the birth of Christ. Everyone else there has brought gifts. This boy only has a drum. So he plays the drum for baby Jesus. It can be read as a great testament to using art to commune with faith and the unknowable. I can see it extolling how any gift you bring that comes from the heart is a good gift. But imagine a reality where a young child plays a drum for a newborn baby. It can easily go south, fast. Nowhere in the song is any indication of the quality of this child's drumming, not to mention if he can read the room. The song loads. Their glowing faces expectantly look at me to see how I like it. And I look at them as if I had just tricked them. But this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. My sister sees it first, and she cries. My mom, weary from the start, looks at the photo, laughs, takes a deep breath, looks at it again, and says, Oh, this is weird. The rest of that night still stands as the most relaxed evening I've ever had with my family. Over the next few weeks, our family sent glossy printouts of this picture to unwitting family members. Of any photo, I can't think of one of us that holds more truth. it for the issue thank you so much for listening if you'd like to keep up with us between issues make sure to like us or follow us on facebook twitter and instagram be sure to go to scoutandbirdie.com and check out david gordeski's comic fraternity and also flip through the digital issue and check out all of the images that inspired each of the artist's pieces If you are an artist and would like to be a part of a future issue of Scout and Birdie, go on to scoutandbirdie.com, click on the submission tab, and send us your stuff. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we're going to play you out with another song by Levi Schrader called 
Thank God for springtime. We'll see you next year with issue 23, Renewal. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Feels like somebody's playing chopsticks on my bones. A demon dance party going on in my brain. Keep a conversation even though I know I'm all alone. I cannot tell the sacred from the profane. And I said, hey, it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better before it gets worse. For springtime and the sun just shining all around It's been too cold to stick a shovel in the ground Take all them mansions for a home Down in the valley A swamp that streamlined for a lone black herd Take all your jewelry, all your fine array, your pretty things. Mix a little ashes in that rouge. And everybody sing. We all said, hey, it's gonna get better. It's gonna get better before. I thank God for springtime and the sun just shining all around. It's been too cold to stick a shovel in the ground. I don't know you, but I'll let you pass under my door. You're not the first one to have come this way before. They shore up castles and raise armies, claim hemispheres. Oh my, sooner or later, every one of them is going to wind up here. I said, hey, it's gonna get better, it's gonna get better before it gets worse, I thank God for springtime, the sun just shining all around, well, it's been too cold to stick a shovel in the ground.